Welcome to Second Nature Podcasts. My name is Mike Brown, and this is my story. Last episode, we dug deeper into my past and finished up the timeline, how my addiction evolved. It may have seemed long and drawn out, but there was a point to retelling it. There's a point to everything I've brought forward so far. As we continue, I will try to answer the questions you may have that stem from those events. In this episode, I'm going to speak on how my addiction affected my relationships with the people closest to me, my family and friends. This is episode four, the ones that mean most. As I said earlier, I've had the same core group of friends for my entire life. Some have come and gone, but I would say that there's a solid five to seven men who I have known, kept in touch with, and still see on a regular basis. These men are the kids that I grew up with. We made lifelong bonds, playing hockey and other sports, going through the ranks of Tyke, Adam, and Pee Wee together. We stayed connected, even when we started to branch off and go our separate ways. It didn't matter. We had created a bond that was greater than hockey. It was more of a brotherhood. Throughout my time in addiction, I had no problem seeking out and making friends with guys that lived the same kind of lifestyle I did. But some of these new friendships were situated around partying together because that's what I wanted to do. I would always gravitate to the guys who were like me. While I was playing hockey, I had become distracted. My focus shifted from getting better at the game I was there for in the first place to when can I party next. I would quickly find out who liked to take it to the next level and also drag others who may not along with me. The perfect example of this was when I got traded to Tri-Cities. As soon as I got there and was meeting the guys, I was able to pick out one in particular that had the same attitude as I did. He was also laid back, carefree, and always looking for a good time. Don't get me wrong, we had some good times. We became quite close, but in the end, our friendship wasn't very good for either of us. Through hockey and drinking, you gain a lot of acquaintances. People you meet through summer training that play on other teams or are previous teammates of teammates. When you all go to the same bars, you run into each other and everyone becomes long lost buddies that haven't seen each other in years. Even though I probably saw them the weekend prior, I just couldn't remember. This was all good and fun when I was younger, 18 to 22 years old. But as I got older and started to see guys slowly disappearing from the scene, maybe they are actually finishing school, getting jobs and having relationships. I tried to tell myself who would want that, who wants to grow up. As I continued to repeat the same things that slowly ate away at me more and more, I started to seek out and find new people that were still carrying on with the destructive lifestyle or continue to bring those around me into mine. I would later learn in treatment that when a person becomes addicted, their ability to mature is stunted. An addict's physical age increases, but our emotional age does not. It also affects our overall brain development, impacting our emotional growth and social development. So in a way, from 17, when my drinking became a problem, to 26, other than growing physically, I did not grow mentally. I have linked an article that has more information on this topic below. 
When I stayed in Calgary to go to school, I thought back on why, and three things came to mind. First, it's my hometown. I had local friends there. Second, I can live at home and not have to pay rent. This keeping my expenses down and providing more money to drink. Third, if I had my local friends, plus the new ones I would make on the team, that would increase my drinking companion total, and I could more than likely always find a willing combatant to tip a couple back with. Here I was again, being resourceful and having a plan, even though I was not aware of it at the time. Like every decision we make, there are pros and cons to it. Unfortunately, this one weighed heavily into the cons. The first con was that it kept me close to home, living there for the first two years. At the time, this was a con because it gave my parents a full scope of what my lifestyle had become. Up until this point, they had only seen short glimpses of it in the summer. They had never seen its true colors, especially the leap it took while I was in Okotoks. They, like any other parent should, did not enjoy me getting home at 5 or 6 a.m. on Sunday mornings, especially if it's because we arrived back at the rink after a road game around 12 or 1 a.m. But of course, I had to get my drinking in somehow. Then, either getting up after a few hours of sleep to go and do it again, or spending the day in the basement in and out of consciousness. The second con was, yes, this is where I got introduced to cocaine. I want it to be clear that I do not blame anyone for this. It was my choice. The ones who introduced me to it did not know my propensity for addiction. It wasn't their goal to get me hooked. I made that choice, not thinking of any future consequences. It happened there, but I believe it would have happened wherever I ended up. Cocaine use is way more common than a lot of people think. It may not have been at school, maybe it was after, but at some point I would have tried it and my addictive personality would have taken over, leading me down the same path because that is my nature. The third con, and what I want to focus a lot of this episode on, was what it did to my relationships. First, the strain I created between myself and those core friends. These guys were not into hard drugs. They didn't use cocaine. As I got deeper into it, tensions continued to increase between us. They knew what was going on. And at first I didn't necessarily try to hide it. But as time went on, I realized that they did not respect it or what it was doing to me. So naturally, instead of trying to stop, I then tried to hide it from them, not fooling anyone. An example of this was near the end. Two of these guys and I had just finished coaching a season together. It was our first weekend free, so I wanted to go hard. However, we had our own hockey game to play on Saturday night. At the time, my friends lived on either side of a duplex, three on one side, three on the other. A good majority of the core guys that were going to play the game were on one side hanging out prior. They weren't too happy about me drinking instead of playing. On the other side, there were a few guys who weren't on the team and they were partying. I was going back and forth between the two sides, drinking and using the whole time. Eventually they went to the game, but of course I stayed. I was in no shape to play. I stayed with the guys who were my party buddies. 
When my core friends got back, they returned to the same side they were on. I was happy they were back and wanted to go hang out with them, so I walked over. I walked up the steps, went for the door, but it was locked. I could see through the window that they were all in there. I was knocking, but they didn't answer. They didn't want me back. They had had enough. This was a gut punch moment. And I believe there is a reason that even in the state I was in, I remember it. At the time, I thought these men that I've known for years, that I grew up with, that are a major part of my life, were done with me. They were telling me that if I wanted to make these choices, I was going to have to do it on my own. I had betrayed their trust and lost their respect. What I didn't know was that they had not given up on me. As I was going through the process of writing this, I met with a few of them to gain their perspective. It turns out, while I was secretly trying to quit those multiple times, a group of them had begun talking about what they were going to do because they couldn't just sit back and let my behavior continue. They told me that they were either going to sit me down and call me out on my behavior, or they were going to get my parents involved, fill them in on the situation. I had no idea this was happening, and I didn't learn about it until six years later, when we finally talked and I gave my side of things. So looking back, which is easy now, if I would have said something to them about trying to quit, they would have been there and supported my decision. Knowing this may have helped, but I'm still glad that I ended up taking the route I took to gain my sobriety. Treatment provided me with a baseline of knowledge I would never have learned anywhere else, which I will focus on later. After learning that my friends were trying to figure out what they should do, it let me know that they cared the whole time. My addicted brain was trying to tell me that they had given up on me, as if to say, we don't need them, when in fact, they were just figuring out what they could do in order to help me. That is why these friendships have lasted decades. If you need to have a tough conversation with a friend or family member, do it. Let them know that they have your support and that you care about them. Stick to the facts Focus on your concerns with the problems and behaviors you see causing them harm, whether they want to hear it or not, and then just listen. Listen to what they have to say. Don't think of your response while they're speaking. Don't judge, don't criticize, or provide ideas of what they should do. Sometimes, someone to listen to may be all that they need. Before I get into my relationships with family, I'm going to put a little context into what my hangovers and withdrawals looked like. So you can see what my parents were dealing with when I lived at home. I'm sure most of you have had hangovers that have kicked your ass and you can relate. For me, this was every time that I drank and it got worse over time to the point where it was torture. After a bender or a heavy weekend of drinking, I would not wake up until the early afternoon from there, I would usually move to the couch. Some days I wouldn't get out of bed. I would be so nauseous that I could not eat anything. I couldn't even stand up. I couldn't think. I was absolutely useless on these days. Barely surviving, let alone accomplishing anything. 
By late afternoon, I would start to have withdrawals. I would start to shake, and I could feel my heart rate increasing. Alcohol withdrawal can be lethal. There were some days that I felt as if I came close. What saved me was the fact that I regularly detox myself by sobering up for a few days in between benders. As the afternoon would turn into night, I may be able to have something small to eat, but usually not very much. My sleep schedule would be completely off. I had been up all night and slept all afternoon, meaning sleep was going to be hard to come by that night. I would be in a full sweat, lying in bed, body shaking, heart pounding, mind racing about everything that could have happened the night before and what I had to do the next day. My anxiety over future non-events, of what people were going to think of me cycling through my mind. Now I could have solved all these issues if I had done one thing, drink more alcohol. But you see, most of the time I would stop myself when I had those thoughts, because again, I thought that action would mean I'm an alcoholic. This may look like I was showing control, but it could have also been my addiction's way of making sure it survived. If we started to drink every day, we would tilt the scale from barely functioning to non-functioning. Increasing the chances of us getting found out and called out becomes ever more greater. This happening repeatedly put strains on my family relationships. I was absolutely unreliable. I could not be looked upon or trusted to show up to places, either because I was out drinking or I was so hungover that I was in no shape to. When there are events like family dinners or functions, depending on the circumstance, I was either anxious and waiting until I could get out of there to go drink, making an exit as soon as I could, or I was irritable, angry, and in no shape to be there. I was no fun to be around if I was hungover. This had affected my whole family, my mother, father, brother, and sister, Drinking and hangovers are one thing, but there were also the ideas that were constantly in my head because of it all. There was one idea that weighed heavily on me. After I had moved out and for my last three years of addiction, every time I was going home for whatever reason, family dinner, to help or pick something up, I had a thought that would run through my mind as I got close. Is this the day that I was walking through the door to an intervention? Will the members of my family the people that I love endlessly, be sitting in the living room? Will they be prepared with sheets of paper, outlining all the negative troubles, emotions, and experiences that my drinking has put them through? All the things I know I have done that affect them, yet I continue to carry on with my self-destructive ways. Am I going to put up my wall and act like everything is fine? Don't worry about me, worry about yourselves. Being blind to the pain, problems and heartache my ignorance is causing them. Every single time that I came home when I was deep in my addiction, this is what crossed my mind. Yet, it never happened. Communication is not my family's strongest trait. We tend to bounce around the underlying issues. One will talk to the other, who talks to the other, who circles back to bring it up with the original party. And it tends to run on an endless merry-go-round with problems never truly coming to a conclusion. What I do know now is that my brother and mother had been discussing my issues for a while. 
He was also there to listen to her, and he never pushed or forced her to act on it. My brother is a physician, as I stated earlier, and he knew that unless I wanted help, there wasn't much she could do, which was true. The first time she wanted me to go to treatment, I was not ready. Her and my father made me go talk to someone we knew who works in addiction. He recommended that I go talk more about it with a counselor who I did not know. My mom says that she booked these appointments and drove me to them, but I cannot remember this. Like I said earlier, I blocked it from my memory. I did not want the help, so I shut myself down in order to get through it. My siblings and I's relationship came and went. My brother is five years older and my sister three. Growing up, we were always busy with our own sports and friends groups. My brother moved out as soon as he graduated high school and went to university. He had a goal to become a doctor. I remember watching him go about it, not getting accepted to medical school the first or second time, but he didn't quit. After a few years of trying, he got in. He knew what he wanted and stuck to it not letting failure get in his way. I admired him for that. He was driven and knew his purpose. Whenever we got together, he always looked and seemed put together. From what I have learned now, he struggled with some depression issues while going through medical school. It pains me to think about it because I was in no place to be any support. His own brother could not be someone he could turn to when he needed help because I was so lost myself. Even though he had his struggles, he was always there when I needed him, but I did not return the favor. Instead, I did the opposite. The few times that we went out together, he later told me, was the only time he had ever blacked out from drinking. That was my effect on him. I brought him down to my level. My sister is the strongest person I know because she had to be. She's the only girl in between two boys. And if you add in my two cousins on the side of the family that we're close with, it's a four to one ratio. So when the family got together, she was on her own island. She never took any shit from my brother or I. She would always fight back. She took her take no shit attitude with her everywhere she went. She was always determined in whatever she did, whether it was building a career or in sports. She played ringette for the majority of her younger years and then switched to hockey boys hockey, around the age of 14. From there, she used her tenacity on the ice to earn a full-ride scholarship to an American university in upstate New York. She, like my brother, always seemed determined. She had a point to prove. This may have stemmed from being the only girl in the family, but she did not let that stop her. She was also not afraid to voice her opinion on me. She went with the tough love approach. We have always had love for each other, but I know that there were times when my actions would make it hard. She was the only one that would put it bluntly, told me straight, when I did something stupid and it wasn't good for me or anyone. My siblings and I grew up in the same household. We had the same experiences and influences surrounding alcohol. We had the same genetics. We also each had our own ways of dealing with it. My brother moved out and set his focus on becoming a doctor. My sister looked to sports to gain an education and start a career. They both drank, but it never caused them any serious problems. I set my sights on hockey, specifically making the WHL. But after that, 
I never thought further or aimed higher. Growing up, alcohol was rarely consumed in our household. My mom did not drink, my dad did, but only outside the house. We weren't constantly surrounded by it, but I remember the effects it had on my father when he would return home from drinking heavily. I also remember the response my mother would have. And I knew what would happen that night or in the next few days between them, and it was not good. It would lead to verbal arguments, and I will touch on this later on. My father is a smart man. He is also probably the most kind and empathetic man I have ever met. He has patience beyond patience, and most importantly, a deep love for his family. This is a man who provided us everything we needed growing up. He stuck by and loved my mother while she had her own struggles. He has driven my grandfather, his father-in-law, and my handicapped uncle through an A&W drive-through to get a burger and chicken strips every Saturday for I don't even know how many years now. He has been there for me every step of the way, bailing me out of the stupid situations I got myself into and not hesitating for a second to send me to a costly treatment center. Family is the most important thing to him. I believe I was given a lot of my father's traits, the good and the bad. My father and I aren't much different when it comes to alcohol. He too has trouble finding his off switch at times. The difference is that every time I saw him maybe having a few too many drinks the night before, he was always up first thing in the morning and going about what he had to do. This trait I did not inherit. I know he always wanted what was best for me and never pushed me to do anything I didn't want to do. He tried to have conversations with me about my drinking. Every time I would push back and get defensive, knowing that neither of us liked conflict. It was hard to connect with him in the later stages of my addiction because deep down, we both knew we had the same problem. My mother and I were very close when I was growing up. When I was in elementary school, she would let me stay home and we would just hang out. I didn't like school. I had lots of energy and trouble sitting still. And I don't think my mom liked being alone. So it worked out for both of us. We would take the dogs for walks, run errands, and do whatever together. I didn't learn until I was older that my mom suffered from depression. But I remember the symptoms. Some days she was up, others she was down. It seemed like there were long stretches of both or sometimes it was all over the place. She did everything for us, and I can understand how hard it must have been on those down days. Having three highly active kids, all playing at least one sport, sometimes two at a time. All the driving, laundry, cooking, and cleaning. No iPhone or iPad to hand over to distract us, or even to distract herself. I remember pestering her with mom, I'm bored. Looking back now, I say mom, thank you. As I got older, she let me go out into the world. She wasn't overbearing or strict. As my drinking got worse, she got more worried. She was starting to see the trends that had surrounded her her whole life. She was starting to take drinks out of my hands at the lake, thinking, oh no, here we go again. She had seen it from all sides, starting with her own family growing up, then my father's side, and now it was continuing with me. I put her through 10 years of worry, pain, and heartache, late nights, wondering if I was going to be okay. 
Was I going to call her because I was stuck in some place and couldn't find a cab or a way home? She took on everyone's pain. Was I hoping that she would save me and take mine away? Here was her youngest, who she had spent so much time with, actively destroying himself. I'm sorry you had to watch me do that. My parents became my enablers. An enabler is a person or thing that makes something possible. I used them to allow my behavior to continue. They did not cause it. My mom did what she thought she could to keep me safe. Her way of doing this was by providing me with money when I needed it. She was there when I would phone her, wherever I ended up. She did this as a way to keep in touch with me, to keep tabs, to know that I wasn't in serious danger. My father did a lot of the same. On occasion, he would try to talk sense into me, but he would always hold back. I think he knew that a talking to wasn't going to solve the problem. They never made any ultimatums, which can be an absolute last resort when dealing with an addictive person, but is rarely a successful way of handling it. Sometimes ultimatums are necessary. If you have exhausted all possible options and the addictive person is unwilling or unable to seek or have lasting recovery, boundaries need to be made in order to preserve your own well-being. For years, I put my entire family in emotional distress. They had constant anxiety about my well-being. It was heightened when they knew I was out drinking. Every one of them told me that they kept their phone next to the bed with the ringer on so that if I called, they could be there for me. Earlier, I said staying in Calgary was full of cons. In addiction, I considered them that. In sobriety, I see them as pros. Without this decision, my addiction may have never been shown. It may have never garnered enough attention in order to make me realize I needed sobriety. It would have made it easier to hide, continue, and cause even greater harm to myself, leaving my family and friends in its wake. I'd like to just take a quick second to say thank you for listening. And if you would like to help me to increase the reach of this project, get it out to a few more people that may need to hear it, it would be greatly beneficial if you could share it on whichever platform you use, whether that be Spotify or the Substack or Apple Podcasts. Again, thank you for listening. And I welcome any comments or messages or any kind of feedback that you may have. Thanks again, Mike.